Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Babis Macri-Nicolas, VP of Product and Pricing at Blueground. In this episode, Babis explains what Blueground is and what his role is responsible for as the VP of Product and Pricing. We then dove into his experience at Amazon with pricing and packaging strategies, their methodology, customer interviews, and more. We also discussed Bobby's challenges moving from a data-driven company like Amazon to a fast-growing startup and how their business intelligence team operates at Blueground. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With the browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. Revenue in the door. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Babis, welcome to the show. Andrew, excited to be here. It's great to have you. For the listeners, Babis is the VP of Product and Pricing at Blueground, a flexible apartment rental startup on a mission to make people feel at home wherever they choose to live. Babis is also a product management instructor at Product School. And prior to Blueground, he served as a product lead across several business units at Amazon. So my first question for you, Babis, is where do you feel at home? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. I'm originally from Greece, so definitely Greece is home, but I've been also living in the U.S. for the last 10 years. So I guess Seattle is my new home. So it's, uh, it's a little bit of both, I would say. And there are many other places of like having friends and like feeling like a very warm, uh, you know, welcome there. So I would prioritize Athens and Seattle, but there are so many other places that like I could really feel at home. So quite a few. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of those things like when you've spent a little bit of time away from like the place where you grew up, slowly after a while, you like it becomes this mixed identity of like, where is home? And I, I have this as well, like I grew up in South Africa and now I've spent more time in Cyprus than I grew up in South Africa, but I also spent like a year almost in Boulder, Colorado. I spent some time in Copenhagen and you get to meet friends and you almost feel torn at some part, like you want to go back and see people, but you can't. And I really liked the, hearing a little bit about Blue Ground and the mission for it. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the startup. And also, I'm also really intrigued by the role of product and pricing, the VP of product and pricing, because as a title, it's not really something you hear. You obviously have VP of product, but you also have pricing in there. So I'm interested a little bit about uh, Blue Ground and what your role is there. Sure. Yeah. I can start with Blue Ground. Blue Ground offers uh, furnished and fully equipped apartments. And uh, right now we operate in about 14 cities and we have about 4,000 apartments. We're growing fast. And the idea is that you can basically move in a, uh, in a house with just a piece of luggage and you're ready to go and you can start exploring the city and try to do what you are there to do, either a vacation or 
starting a new job or like going on with your life without setting up a new home being a hassle. So that's the idea. And we're on a mission to do that uh, across many more cities. Now, in terms of my personal background, yeah, it's an interesting intersection and happened organically. I was in product and like the last 10 years product has grown a lot. So it's been a, an interesting uh, journey. And at some point I was finishing my MBA and got an offer from Amazon. And the idea was to join one of their um, uh, teams. And I didn't know which team because they give you a generic offer. And so there's some sort of matching process between incoming PMs and teams that have product needs. And so as part of this discussion, they asked me about my preferences. I started meeting people. And one of the ideas was, uh, I want to do something with data. I really liked uh, data even before my, my Amazon days. So I thought, okay, I'm joining Amazon, data-driven company. Great. Like how I, about I double down on data? Of course, the answer was, hey, all our teams are working with data. So that's a naive way to select a team. And I was like, okay. I don't know what else to tell you guys. Just, you know, place me like anywhere, really. I'm sure I'll find a good challenge. But they're like, okay, we think our pricing team might have a little more data than your average team. So how about that? Which sounded interesting. So I, I joined the pricing team. And so the way it works at Amazon is that like every, every group has product managers that like lead different initiatives. And so this was where the pricing product intersection happened to, to start. And then going through different roles and teams, I, I kept in some of these roles, like this pricing angle, like after e-commerce, I moved to Amazon Web Services and I did pricing for the cloud. So I got a different cloud perspective, but at the same time, sorry, pricing perspective, but at the same time I was doing products and yes, this title like followed me now at Lookaround. Yeah. To merge together. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, when you say doing pricing at Amazon, it's specifically a product squad and like, what would be the main bulk of work that you're working on? Would you did, did it touch anything towards billing side of things or was purely just looking at pricing and packaging and figuring out how the product should be packaged? So at AWS was a combination of things, definitely packaging and like the product definition was part of it. We had close collaboration with the billing uh, platform because a lot of challenges were how do we uh, price things and also how do we bill for the things we price because you have the concept of metering and you try to meet in real time and you have all these interesting challenges about someone running so many instances and how do you uh, estimate how much what they're running is cost and so on. So there was this, this element, uh, there was a, a space around uh, new pricing models. How about we give our customers the ability to buy in bulk and get some discounts or buy products that might have different availability requirements and get a discount because they're okay with like lower availability, for example, or how about you buy a different instance or how about you buy it in, in a new region. A lot of variations where we try to create win-win solutions between Amazon, AWS in this case, and, and customers. There was the operational aspect of pricing. So I need to price so many different SKUs. How does this happen from a product perspective and how what systems should I have in place to support this pricing at scale? Because I have thousands or like millions of like SKUs. So it's not like as simple as here's an Excel file with, you know, 10 products. Let's put a number in each of the 10. Yeah. And then there is the more uh, interesting aspect of like data analysis where you had the teams of data scientists or economists looking at purchasing patterns and like how customers react with different products, which products are more sticky. If you buy this product with other products, would you buy? And like how these things interact. So it, it had like very interesting areas around pricing. Yeah, it sounds super interesting. I, I think like listening to you talk through this, I think one of the interesting areas, and I think I'd be interested to hear how this was done at Amazon, but when it comes to pricing and packaging, typically like people think to go test these sort of things. And I think more often than not, most startups just don't have the volume and the capacity to actually effectively do tests on pricing and packaging. 
And I'm wondering, like at a place like Amazon, where you actually do have the volume and the traffic, how do you actually go ahead and test pricing and packaging? So you mentioned you're trying to, I think in the AWS example, you mentioned you had a few different pricing models or it was a discount and it was package deals and things like that. Are these tests that you're running or like, how are you evaluating the effectiveness of them? So I think in most cases, the idea starts Amazon's from the customer. So you try to deeply understand customer needs and what problem are you actually trying to solve? What specific use cases the customer has in the cloud world? This could be what workloads the customer wants to to support with this new instance, let's say. In e-commerce might be more straightforward because you have products that are out there before Amazon inventing them. And so you have already some references. And then what you try to do is build the right set of features to meet your customer's requirements at the right price point. So like the reality is because pricing is quite sensitive, it's, it's harder, in, in, especially in the cloud space, to, to actually test it because testing would mean increase and decrease the price, which is not something you can easily do because customers like at the same time require some stability and want to know exactly how much we're going to pay. So it's a weird thing. There's some things you can do, launch different prices in different regions, but this is not a perfect experiment because at times like Perhaps different seven, regions, yeah. yeah, like so, or the e-commerce space, you can change prices every hour or every day and see how your purchases like also like potentially change and see what happens. This is also tricky because you have so many substitutes, so many other products like that might affect the pricing decision. So you have to really control for a bunch of variables. There's really no like uh, very accurate pricing testing. So there's a combination of some data points that directionally point you somewhere, but a lot of it is I'm understanding my customer, the use cases, and I feel that this is a good price point. I've done, I don't know, 20, 30, 50, 100 interviews, and I continue to talk to customers and get feedback, which makes me more confident about the price points. And obviously, then you see the after the fact, like, hey, I actually sold so much. Was that more or less what I expected? Did I, I don't know, exceed expectations? Maybe I'm underpricing because I sold out and, and fine tune as you go. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting just hearing you talk through that because I think it's almost you have the opposite challenge then at Amazon where you have so many customers that it becomes a restrictive uh, place to actually test things because there's just so much more volume and people to uncover and see what's going on. And I think that's always a concern when people do pricing tests is like, oh, if one person sees one price, another one sees another price, like, uh, is that not bad for us? And how do we sort that? And I could see that definitely being a big problem at Amazon with the scale that there is. I'm interested then though as well. So you mentioned sort of like you've done your research, you've done your interviews and you understand what a good price point is. And I think this as well, typically when we do pricing and packaging research, it's done with panel studies and trying to understand like what price point would be too much, what price point would be uh, like a good deal, what price is too mm -hmm. low and so forth. So are you using any methodology? It's like the Van Westendorp uh, pricing sensitivity, like... How do you go about on these interviews? What is your methodology and process to figure out what is that initial price point you want to be positioning the product at? So it depends on the domain. I think like for, if you think about e-commerce, a lot of it could just be like, what are the other references, right? E-commerce like by and large is commoditized. And so in a way you have to be competitive. So it doesn't matter what you think the right price point is. The market thinks the right price point is, you know, 20% lower probably you'll never sell because people can easily check prices across and there are so many aggregators and tools where you can be informed about other prices. With Blueground, for example, is a little different because you have specific assets and there's, there's some competition, but there's no exactly similar assets. So there is 
again, probably a price point that like you can you can assume is is good, but like you have some buffer to play and you can. Uh, but, but I think the main idea is like how do you get this intelligence from the market and continuously adjust your prices like in settings like e-commerce where you can like customers are familiar with the idea that prices change daily or hourly or whatever. You can fine tune your price points based on the data that the market gives you, and so. If, for example, you have stock for 100 items and you can get more of those, it's a very different problem than like you have stock for 1,000 items and you can replenish like every hour. And so if the market tells you that this is a low price point and your strategy is to sell out as soon as possible because you have essentially unlimited supply, you might go for a lower price point. If you only have 100 of those and these are like, I don't know, a limited edition and you won't get more, you might go higher. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, there are more complications. For example, like you have to think of customer experience. Like in most of these settings, you're also building a more long-term relationship with your customer than the purely transactional. I want to buy a widget today and want to never see you again. And so you cannot price gouge. You can. You you want to build like this relationship that like everyone leaves the conversation and the transaction feeling like a winner and feeling they got more value than they gave. And so you have to also like take into account NPS or whatever your customer satisfaction metric is and yeah. feel that you gave good value. Yeah, I, I agree as well. Like I think it's not just thinking about the short-term sale, but more like the long-term repeats in the e-commerce space, like repeat sales and SaaS, like uh, retaining customers. I think like qualitatively for me, a good measure I think always is like looking at the number of customers that actually complain about price and the number of like reasons like for churn specifically, like when it comes to talking about SaaS is like, if you don't have a reasonable amount of people complaining about price, like maybe 15, 20%, you're more than often probably too cheap uh, and you yeah. should think about raising prices. And then the opposite, if you're too high from existing customers, you get a little bit of a sense of price point itself there. But then I also like the idea as well of like, when we think about pricing and packaging, asking your customers what a good price point is not necessarily a good place to start because already your customers. So they're essentially you selling to the market, not to your existing customers. So it's important to understand these panels and these research. Talk to us a little bit about AWS side then and putting together those packages. What did your user interviews look like speaking to your customers? So you identified, okay, a use case, they want the way they wanted to use their mm-hmm. uh, the infrastructure. What would a typical interview look like with a customer trying to understand how to package and then what the price would look like? What would you be asking? Sure. Yeah. The typical would be talking to like actual users of the product. So usually could be a DevOps team, could be the engineering team of one of your customers and trying to understand their use cases, try to understand exactly what they're trying to do, what pain points they have and maybe what they're trying to, what they're using right now to solve the same problem and then understand if you can offer something much better because it has many tens of like different combinations of tens of instances, which have hundreds of combinations. And so there's something out there that like prob- they're probably already using, right? Or they've built their own custom solution. So what you're trying to see is what is their solution? Like how we could potentially even improve that. What's, uh, what's interesting is to like really understand what the requirements, are they trying to do something that has, I don't know, like a very heavy compute uh, use case or is this um, like, is memory the, the challenge? Is availability the challenge? Like, what are they really driving for? And then design the right product to to solve their, their problem. The, the price point like obviously matters, but like, comes at the second point, you try to get to a pricing recommendation and do the exercise of, okay, what is this product? How do we position it and how much should it cost? And in terms of the, the packaging options, we usually offer like all these packaging options, meaning you can, if you want to buy in bulk, there's a discount. If you want to, I don't know, if you're okay with lower availability, there's also a discount. So uh, then it's up to the user to 
navigate this selection of options and decide what's the best trade-off between price and, uh, and value they, they get to select the right item. If someone, for example, can commit to using the same type of server for three years, there's a good discount because Amazon knows that whatever server they have in their data warehouse, uh, sorry, data center will be utilized for three years. And that has some value for Amazon and they're happy to pass some of that discount to the customer and so on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it sounds like very much as well at Amazon, it cost-based pricing is an important component in terms of like how you price your product. I'm interested now as well, a little bit at Blue Ground though, where you mentioned this, there's nothing really comparable on the markets to what you're doing right now. So you're pretty much trying to figure out and set out what the right price point is for the product. How are you doing that now at Blue Ground as well, obviously not having the excessive resources and introducing something fairly new as a concept, what does the pricing and packaging work look like there? Sure. When I'm saying there's something, there's nothing like a comparable, exactly the same asset. There are definitely like other options. There are some competitors out there and there's some choices our, our customers have as alternatives. For example, you can argue that if someone wants to go to New York for two months, Blue Ground doesn't exist and no competitor that does something similar exists, they can stay in a hotel. So there's a price for that. Or they can, I don't know, rent a house and furnish it. So there's there is a cost for that and you can approximate it. So there is some idea of what, how would someone solve the same problem? Because essentially it's like a job to be done kind of idea. You, you offer like a, a solution on the job, which is I want to, I don't know, find an accommodation in New York kind of thing. So there are some comps and you can find, uh, for example, you can go to Airbnb and see like how much, a, I don't know, a furnished apartment costs. It might not be one-to-one, but you get an idea of how much someone could potentially pay yeah. for another solution and adjust based on how better or worse your solution might be. So you might say, okay, I feel I'm more premium. How much premium? Hard to put a number, but 20% more premium. Okay, maybe that's a good trade-off. And a lot of it, again, is like understanding like your demand and supply versus the market's demand and supply and like yeah. get signals for the market. So a lot of what we do is really identify these uh, signals where the market is telling us like, okay, we have more demand for your product than supply in the market. And so there's an opportunity to increase prices and the opposite, decrease prices to manage our revenue goals. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, with Blue Ground, we try to revenue optimize. It's a little different than other cases where you have uh, unlimited supply. We don't have unlimited supply and also yeah. having vacant supply, the function is a little different there. Yeah, absolutely. It, it sounds very much what Blue Ground is selling to me is convenience. And in the sense as well, because you could essentially do these through Airbnb and other places, but just to understand as well, is the concept with Blue Ground monthly, month to month or quarterly or six monthly, it's more longer term stays, but you would just want the convenience of finding a familiar place? Or do you have a subscription with Blue Ground where you can access places in different locations? What is the... So we do, uh, customers can select their duration of stay. Right now, we offer 30 plus stays. You have to stay for at least a month, but you can select if you want to stay for a couple of months or for a couple of years. And we accommodate both. The main difference from like an Airbnb solutions, this is a fully managed experience where Blue Ground operates the the property, furnishes. So there is, there's a standard, I guess there's some bar, but like we always exceed in terms of uh, convenience in terms of the amenities we offer, in terms of the the furnishing, and in terms of the equipment in the apartment. Yeah. Uh, so so versus an Airbnb host with, where there is like no standardization. Great hosts out there, but it's a little bit of a like you have to search a little more to it's find w- what meets your needs. And we recently launched another model, which is you essentially commit for six months or a year, 
and uh, you can move around apartments. So especially now, you know, with digital nomads and like this remote work yep. becoming more mainstream, this is something interesting that a segment of our customers are, uh, are looking at. And so we designed a product to, to meet these needs. So you can spend three months in New York and then you can go to Athens and then you can go to Dubai and you have a master list that covers that. And then depending on your specific moves, you can, you know, freeze your lease and then you can take another lease in another city. It's an interesting uh, concept. Yeah, it's very cool. I like that. So you have one subscription in a sense, and then you can stay in multiple places and just move around and get a familiar feel as well. Like you say, knowing that one company is running everything and that's nice. So next question I had then as well, like trying to compare and maybe the question is, what's been your biggest challenge then going from a place like Amazon, having, I'm sure like resources left and right, having access to a ton of data and then moving to a place like Blueground now, fast growing startup, but just not nearly, I think as established in a lot of ways as Amazon. So what's been like one of your bigger challenges adapting to this environment? True. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think part of it is obviously Amazon operating for, I don't know, like 27, 28 years now, has established some data processes and some operational excellence practices and has all experience of running running teams and running product teams, engineering teams, data teams, that it's hard to match uh, anywhere, really, not only at Blueground. And so yeah. the, the, there are some resources which, uh, which are very well established and you join a, a, a group, have this uh, central hub of analytics. That being said, that Amazon is also growing organically and it's growing in a very much distributed way. And so... Uh, every new team is also giving their own touch on on how they want to grow. And it's not that all problems are solved. Even at Amazon, you have to you know fight for your data and uh, have discussions about like how you get more data that you might not have, or how do you get access to something that like you might not be logging properly. So th- th- there is a, l- a little bit of both. You have a great infrastructure like as a base, but like every new product has its own yeah. data needs, and so it, it takes time to build. Uh, Blueground, obviously, we're starting at a much earlier point where we try to establish this framework while growing and while building teams. And so we are, we're behind, like compared to Amazon, but we like, I, th- I think have enough data for, for our needs and building as, as we go. I think there is a lot of it is like building like centralized teams, but also embed data analysts or data scientists or data related roles within teams to also get this data engine running. There is there's a little bit of a, of a challenge uh, there, but we're, we're working on it. Working on it. And how are you structuring that then? So do you have a business intelligence team or data analytics team? Like what is the model that they operate under? And, uh... We do. So we have a business intelligence team, which is a centralized team that owns reporting KPIs across the companies, all all. Company, all company departments can work with the BI team to get their dashboards up and running. We're using some open source tools internally which can help any member of the company to get access to data without really having uh, technical knowledge. So for example, you don't need to be able to write SQL to get simple answers in questions like, okay, how many of my customers do XYZ? Obviously, for more sophisticated questions, you, you might need some help, but we try with these open source tools to be able to answer, I don't know, 50, 70, 80% of questions and unblock the teams to really leverage data. And I think lately there, we've been experimenting with like models where we also embed uh, data analysts or business analysts like in different teams. For example, in the pricing team, most of the members of the team are business analysts. And so they can definitely run their, run their own SQL and data and uh, are more familiar with these processes. There, there is a little bit of both starting centralized and then like embedding like uh, business analysts here and there. But I think it's also key to do the third thing, which is everyone, even if their title is not formally a business analyst, be able to 
know uh, what data we have or how to request new data or self-serve themselves uh, to use data like up to a point so that you really empower the whole organization to use data and not just like the few that I don't know are very technical or know, know how to do it. Yeah, and like empowering the team with and making sure that the data literacy is up there, I think it's really, it's a great one. It's not, it's a really impactful way because like you really want to be using your analysts and your more technical team members to be tackling deeper problems and uh, doing more intense research, not just answering uh, questions that pretty much anybody can with a little bit of basic knowledge uh, pull out themselves. Uh, exactly, yeah. Like how many books had you yesterday? You should have a dashboard for that. It's not yes. like a question that your analyst would get 25 days, hours a day. And yeah. answer the same question over and over. Yep. That was something at Hotchar setting up the business intelligence team. We always optimized for the local or the global maximum. So when we thought about the next project, we weren't answering, like we actually in the very beginning, we said, do not come to us for any requests because uh, if we start answering those now, like we're never going to get to building the things we want to do. So we just started like picking off the biggest problems, building dashboards, building self-serve analytics, and then educating the team along the way. And I think that really put the team then in a good position to be able to do some really interesting work then and not be bombarded just by the same questions over and over. And then slowly, as you said, getting to that embedded model now where they're working directly with product squads on individual challenges and but setting the foundations of things really important and educating the team on how to self-serve and uh, democratize analytics is uh, definitely the way to go but yeah so I see as well, time is getting short. I want to ask you a question. I ask every guest that joins the show. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that you join a new company. Churn and retention is not doing good at this company. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, Bobbies, we really need to turn things around. We only have 30 days uh, to make an impact. You're in charge. Uh, you need to make a dent on the number. What are you going to do? But the trick is you're not going to tell me that I'm going to go speak to customers, understand the biggest pain points and problem and start doing that. And because that's what everybody says. You're going to pick something that you've either used yourself in the past or seen work in the past to help increase retention. And you just blindly run with that. What would it be? Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Sorry, I'm laughing because I, it's tricky to get into the executional mode without understanding the problem deeply. I'm forcing myself to do it. Like, I want to caveat that with the fact that I would probably try to understand the problem, but it, it, it's kind of tricky to do this. Like, so I guess I, I, I interpret the question as like, what's your assessment of churn uh, root cause without knowing anything, but also without having the ability to investigate further? What's something you've seen that's been effective in the past with reducing churn? I, mean, I, think, I think a little bit of a, you know, it's company specific. I need to uh, probably understand the context. I understand this might not be <laughs> allowed. So I would go with something like improving customer experience. And this is a very wide range of things you can do. But I think in principle, the more value you give, the less of a reason your customers have to, are, are willing or incentivized to leave your service. And so I would probably go with something like improve my product in a material way to give customers more value, improve my customer support or find other ways where I can add value to my customers. And this is a little bit business dependent, so we can talk about details, but like the idea would be increase the value I provide to my users, bottom line. Cool. So next question I have for you then is what's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? I don't know. Part, part of my <laughs> my my challenge, uh, like answering this question, is like I think I'm not thinking about churn retention on a daily basis. I think of like maybe repeated customer, which is the inverse. Which is, but but like somehow it. I don't think of that as a on my day to day. My KPIs are not around churn retention. Yeah. So I, even at like 
when you say repeat customers and things like that from a blue ground perspective now would you say like retention is not a main driver is it like repeat purchases what is the main focus then what are the main drivers there we're one of these businesses where you could be a repeat customer, but it's not a given. It's not like if you think about it, like we're not selling a subscription. We're not selling like compute, for example, like AWS. Essentially, if you're running your website, you need to purchase every day or every month because otherwise your website will be down or you can you have to go to a competitor. So yeah. uh, there are like uh, a few occasions where you need to use Blueground today, like starting a new job. And we try to increase that. And so... We, we had good success with some of our customers, for example, becoming more long-term customers of Blueground. But a lot of it, and I think there, is, there, for example, is where we're talking about adding more value, right? So you want to have a, such a good solution that like some of your customers will decide to stay with you. Of course, there are cases like mine where, you know, I just bought a house. So Blueground is like outside of my, like the, the companies like I would use in Seattle because I, I own right now. But, and if I go to Greece for a couple of months, I'll use them, but maybe then I'll use them two years later. So it's a little bit of a tricky concept because you don't have a, a very specific usage pattern like you might have in other businesses. Uh, I don't know, like the cloud, you clearly have like customers that like repeat month over month. And if you lose someone, it means that they decided most likely to do something else. It's uh, like with Blueground, it's not exactly the case, like Airbnb or other type of companies. Like it's a little more transactional or an ad hoc type of, of use. And you might have them, and even Airbnb, you might go on vacation twice a year. Blueground, you might start a new job every three years. You'll see a repeat pattern over a long period of time, but it's a little harder to measure compared to other companies where these repeat usage patterns are like more standard. That's interesting in its own right. I think and that's something I think when we think about building habits that people can't really build a habit out of your product because of the life cycle and uh, the frequency of use. This is something as well. It's really good from Nira Yal's book uh, called Hooked, where he talks about like how to build habit forming products. And really one of those key things is around the frequency of usage. If you don't have a frequency of usage, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I read the book, but like of less than 30 days. So you need to make sure that people have a trigger to use your product within 30 days to be able to uh, like effectively build a habit around that. The the one antidote that I like on this is that although like a business like Blueground is not something that you'd frequently use, there's a good story and use case thing from Zillow, the property company. They also had a similar challenge in the sense that you don't buy a house every day. So mm-hmm. once you buy a house, it's yes, I bought my house. I'm not going to do it another six months from now. It's probably five years down the line. I'm going to think so. What they were trying to figure out was, hey, okay, like how can we still stay top of mind and how can we encourage those repeat purchases and retain those Uh, customers long-term and what they ended up doubling down on was a couple of things one was content and the other was a home pricing calculator and effectively what they would do was like you would sign up for the service once you bought the house with Zillow and every like month or six months or whatever the frequency was they would send you an update and say hey Bobby it's like your price you bought it at this much Uh, your current valuation of the house in your area would go something like this so that's something like it's interesting for the buyer because they can say, okay, wow, like I bought this and it's it's increased 20% in value over the last two, three years. And then also I'm still remembering Zillow next time I want to go and do that repeat purchase. So just thinking through that in, in the context of business like Blue Ground or some other places where you, you're looking for these repeat purchases, but the frequency is not entirely there. I find very fascinating, like is probably more a long-term plan, something that you've got a thousand other things you're trying to tackle now at Blueground, but definitely thinking about like retention and how do you keep customers when the frequency is not there. Uh, totally, yeah. It, it, it's a very tricky one, I would say. Yeah, it's, it's hard, to, hard to balance that. I think 
Zillow and Redfin and this type of companies also now are getting into the, the business of actually taking over the sale of your house and actually they give you a cash offer. So having this data, I think, plays really well on other business models they're inventing, yeah. which is a good monetization uh, strategy for them, ha- having you around and like knowing that like the moment you, you are thinking of selling your house, most likely you'll at least test the water with a, if you don't want to properly list your house. So that's, I think that's, a, that's an interesting example for sure. Super interesting how they've used and leverages that data. And then the LTV of your typical customer just goes through the roof then like you actually not only helping them find the house, but selling the house and buying it from them and earning commission all around. I love that. Cool. Maybe is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with today? Uh, anything they should be aware of like from your work or how can they keep up to speed and connect with you? Yeah, anyone can connect with me on LinkedIn. I also publish uh, a blog whenever I have time. I've been not very consistent, I have to say, but like it's bmac at uh, .substack.com. So I, I write about uh, mostly about product and, uh, and pricing. Either way, they can follow me. I'm also on Twitter. Again, not super active, but I try to engage every now and then. So yeah, feel free to, to reach out. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much. All the questions, really interesting discussion. Very nice. Yeah, we'll definitely leave a link in the show notes. So if you want to check it out and subscribe to whenever Bobby's writes uh, something, like go ahead and do it. And yeah, thanks so much for joining. It's been great chatting today. Uh, Wish you best of luck going forward. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.